Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. My name is L Stanger. Find me on lstanger.com. Email theytalksex at protonmail.com. Please rate and review us on your listening app so that more folks can find us. We are going to talk about herpes and relationships. Welcome to the herpes and relationships episode with our guest, Courtney Brame. Some of you know Courtney from Instagram at H on my chest, Twitter, same handle. Uh, his contact info is spfpp.org. That stands for something positive for positive people.org. So welcome, Courtney. You had me on your podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. We've been internet friends for a couple of years. I'm a big fan of your work, so I want the audience to get to know you. Um, you run a podcast and also a nonprofit. Why did you start the podcast? This is your entry story. <laughs> All right. You're going to have to cut me off if I talk too long, but I had condensed the story down to just simply something positive for positive people is a suicide prevention resource for people who are navigating herpes stigma. Uh, I've been diagnosed with genital HSV type 2, which is the herpes simplex virus that primarily causes outbreaks genitally. I haven't had any oral outbreaks, um, but when I was diagnosed, um, I went about four years of navigating this on my own, just from my diagnosis to disclosures to relationships, dating, sex, and support. Uh, was not something that was on the table for me. It took for me to begin to really look for different resources that were out there to help me through my diagnosis. And that's when I stumbled across a dating site for people who were living with herpes. And so on that dating site, I found it and then I kind of discovered myself again, if you will. Um, I was on there and I had no problem with connecting with women and meeting people and being social and like the chat rooms and everything. But in my peripheral, there were often people who were very just um, unable to navigate their diagnosis. I saw a bunch of suicide threats over the course of my time on these online platforms. And once I got into the online platform, uh, there were other support groups, dating groups, social groups, and I'd also see it there. And they would just say, like, the reason being that no one's going to love them, their uh, sex lives are over because of this virus. And in seeing that, I began to, like, recognize how many more people are living normal lives, living with herpes that we just never would hear from because they're living their lives with herpes, right? And there's also like the people who are in relationships already, like people don't have a reason to talk about how normal their lives are living with herpes. And I think that that's where um, that high percentage of the population that's living with herpes resides at because there's no problem. There's no reason for them to come out and be like, yeah, my life's great or my life's normal and I have herpes. So it was important for me to find people who had that story, who were comfortable enough in their experience to be able to share that this is what their life looks like with their diagnosis and just share a little bit of their story so that people are able to find support in a safe way to where they don't have to run the risk of people finding out that they have herpes. So this became more of like a support tool rather than having to meet up in person with a group of people and running the risk of bumping into somebody you know and whatever other concerns that people have about being outed about their HSV status. And so over the first two years of these interviews, I learned a lot from people. And some of what came up consistently was that we needed mental health resources. When people are diagnosed, that directly reflects not only how a person goes on to disclose their status to other people, but if they determine, if they are uh, 
go on to disclose their status to other people. So along the way, uh, I decided to make something positive for positive people, which was at that point just a podcast, into a nonprofit organization that raises money in order to support people in navigating the state. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, I didn't know what I was going to do with Mm -hmm. it. I just knew that I could take donations and at the very least be able to pay the bills of running a podcast. with this service being provided. And it's a really relevant service to a lot of people because, I mean, I don't know where the most accurate statistics are on this. Maybe you do. But, I mean, isn't it like at least half of Americans are going to have at least one type of herpes? Like, if you get oral cold sores, like, I have herpes simplex 1. I know that. A lot of people don't know that that's a type of herpes. We call it cold sores. So I specifically will tell people like, oh, thank you, but like I can't hit that joint or like, no, I shouldn't share like chapstick with you or this glass because I'm having a herpes outbreak. And some people are so grateful because they've never heard it named that way. And other people are just like shocked and like annoyed (laughs) that you would say something like that in my experience. Um, But yeah, there's definitely a greater stigma to the genital type, I think, because genitals tend to be more stigmatized anyway. What do you think? Yeah, so... There's a lot to that in terms of like, even with language, like we call HSV-1 oral herpes, we we name it cold sores. And after talking to medical professionals, what's consistently come up is that we don't want to associate a, a sexually transmitted infection with youth. So where a lot of people get cold sores, right, oral HSV-1 from youth with just kissing because it's transmitted by skin-to-skin contact, Mm -hmm. right? So if granny has a cold sore or shedding and then just kisses you all over the face when you're young, Mm -hmm. then that's where you got it from. And therefore, you shouldn't be, you know, stigmatized, right? But the minute you become an adult from that interaction and you go down on someone and they get it and then it becomes a genital, uh, a sexually transmitted infection that went to the genitals. And now it's stigmatized. Mm -hmm. So it's more so about the sex piece than it is the virus. And like, if we look at how things are with COVID right now, the conversation around viruses ought to be shifting because herpes is a virus, COVID is a virus. Mm -hmm. And when we get to the point of talking about like transmission and disclosure and diagnosis, a lot of stuff, it goes parallel. Mm -hmm. You can wear a mask and still get COVID. You can wear a condom and still get herpes. Mm -hmm. You could go through the phase of thinking that you might've gotten it. So with partners being like, hey, I was exposed to COVID, you should go get checked. It's the same thing with STIs. And what I've found is that like when people have been diagnosed with COVID, at least in my uh, circle or my range of perspective, there's almost this, this shame of like, I did everything I was supposed to do, and yet I still got COVID. And I think now with how this has been throughout 2020, 2021, people are understanding, dang, you can do everything in your power to take the precautions and minimize the risk, but it still might happen, which I think helps us in being people who are carriers of this virus to better navigate discussions around it. And as people who are not carriers of the virus, um, like you very well could be. And that's something I think when you engage in any kind of contact sport, you know, if it's football or wrestling or sex, like you could get injured, even if you take proper precautions and have education agreements, um, you know, protective gear barriers. So, and I don't think there's shame for athletes. Maybe there is, maybe they carry shame, um, you know, if they get hurt while they're playing, but like definitely when people get injured when they're having sex, I think there's some shame around that or they, acquire an STI or like a pregnancy, an accidental pregnancy. So for those listening, um, before we started recording this episode, we had a ton of technical difficulties. Like I'm not great with tech and you had like connectivity issues, but it took us like half an hour to get this episode going. And what I was thinking was like, wow, this just so relates to navigating the world with herpes or anything else, because if you are invested in an outcome, Like you might take the extra steps to like figure out how are we going to make this work in an interaction? Um, And then also knowing our limitations, because what did I say? I said, if we can't figure this out in 10 minutes, like we're done for today. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, Yeah. it Um, does parallel very well, because 
what I've learned in navigating my own diagnosis and especially with like dating, whenever things are going to get sexual, um, for more, uh, more women identifying people mm-hmm. who, uh, have like hormonal changes or with birth control or uh, having their periods, they tend to get outbreaks around that time. So communication with them looks like, hey, you know, I normally get outbreaks around my period. I'm going to start my period. We probably Mm. shouldn't have sex. And Mm. then the dialogue becomes, how can we still be intimate with one another? How can we still uh, share space in this way and experience pleasure? And being able to really explore, you know, improv ways around it. So, like, when we talk about, you know, it took us 30 minutes. We just had a little bit of technical difficulties. It's just a minor inconvenience in terms of timing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with that. Like, I just may not be able to penetrate in the way that I want to. Um, and someone may not be able to receive penetration in the way that they want to. Or at all. Uh, or at all because mm-hmm. of an outbreak, which is just simply a minor inconvenience for many people. Um, not to discredit the extreme symptoms that people have or the nerve pain or uh, anything else that they may have. Yeah, the mm-hmm. chills and the body aches, uh, which typically come with the first outbreak. I haven't really heard of anyone getting that sick. Um, for a reoccurring outbreak, but it's mostly just like nerve pain and the physical symptoms of outbreaks, which I learned about that after I got diagnosed that outbreaks are a thing. I used to think that if I got herpes, my genitals would always look like the uh, physical expression of the virus. Like sores or blisters or whatever, the photos they show you in in the sex ed to scare you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Those. you think like, oh, I just have this all the time. And that's the mistake where people think like, well, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. So obviously they don't have an STI. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that's people... what I learned. Yeah. yeah. For me, like I learned that if someone has an STI, first off, uh, it would be smelly or you'd see it and it would hurt so bad or be so uncomfortable that like immediately too want to have sex yeah, yeah which like, is not the case not the case at all not at all um so i want to give a little bit of definitions to folks uh so i'm going to read from our bodies ourselves this is a big fat book i really like this is the fourth edition so herpes 1 and 2 Type 1 is more often on the mouth. However, both type 1 and 2 may infect the genital tract. The, me- the language is really medicalized, so I'm sorry if it sounds like stigmatizing. So like, for example, type 2 known as genital herpes is more serious. Um, it can be more serious. Honestly, I sometimes wonder if I'd rather have a genital sore over a face sore because as a sex worker, like you can see both. But when I'm not a sex worker, at least no one could see my genitals. Um, that was my attitude when I found out that really? it was the genital kind. I was like, well, at least only the people I tell will know about it. No one will see it on my face. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how spread is bisexual contact? So friction, most often transmitted when no symptoms are present. So the person may not even be aware that they have the virus. Virus will shed at the same spots where the original infection occurred. So usually the first outbreak, they say according to studies, and tell me if any of this flags is wrong to you, uh, usually is within two to 10 days of the first couple weeks. Um, the first outbreak's typically the worst, but you might never have an outbreak. For common symptoms, there are none in the majority of those infected. You may experience a blister or a cluster of ulcerated painful blisters in the genital area or on your mouth. Herpes lives in your nerves. Uh, in the base of the spine for genital outbreaks and at the top of the spine, like behind the neck uh, for oral outbreaks. Like these are just its preferences if we're talking about type one, type two. And Isn't that amazing that viruses live somewhere in your body? Like people don't know that. Yeah. Some people just think about that. Ooh, yeah. Like, fascinating. Like, yeah. That's where, that's where they reside. Like this is where they run their life cycle. Your right? body is a universe. Um, Exactly. And so when we talk about like fluids, that that doesn't mean that's not skin to skin contact. And the most accurate and consistent information says that herpes is spread by skin to skin contact. And there's uh, stuff out there or more people say things like sharing drinks and things like that. 
but I don't see any recent studies that talk about transmission rates from object to uh, from person to object to person. Interesting. If that makes sense. Interesting. Huh. Okay. So I also, this was one that I remember tickled my brain when I learned it. It's in the chicken pox family. Yes, it is in the same family as chicken pox. There's a, I forget the exact number, but I know there's at least 10 uh, different viruses in the herpes like family. Strains. Yeah. So there's HSV1, HSV2, yeah. herpes zoster. Uh, there's chicken pox, shingles. And we'll go into listener questions soon, but so you started the podcast, you received a ton of feedback from people who had undergone all kinds of similar and different experiences, and you've created this nonprofit. I forget that it was a suicide prevention resource. I forget that's a big part of your origin story, because I was really shocked to learn that people would be suicidal after diagnosis, but then when I take a step back and zoom out, it absolutely makes sense because it's very stigmatized and can be very isolating, especially depending on where you live or what you've been raised to believe. Yeah. And I've interviewed people, um, medical professionals to speak to that. And what I've learned is that it's more about like a loss of control. There's like an aspect of uh, grieving your identity as a sexual person as well. Mm. So when a person receives their diagnosis, and this is a permanent thing now, our own internal beliefs about not only STIs, herpes, but uh, sex in general, that's kind of what we associate with. So we get this diagnosis and it just completely shatters whatever beliefs that we had about our sexual selves. And then mm -hmm. we're left with having to piece it all back together uh, at the end of it all, or like throughout the grieving process, throughout the healing process and whatever avenues we decide to use to cope. Um, and that's really that that's really what it is. And so some people take that to heart because this is solely what they remember themselves to be and just lose any other aspects of themselves outside of uh, who they were in their sexual identities. So mm -hmm. now finding a partner, being in a relationship, having sex, uh, and even the shame that you might face from your peers, if you were to disclose to your family, your friends, or if work were to find out, like that's even a real fear. Like people who work in education and work with kids, like having wow. the school system find out that they have an STI is going to make one, kids are cruel. Like, that's one thing. Yeah. But parents be like, I don't want my kid around them. They have herpes. They might get it. And it's just, oh it speaks volumes to just the misinformation that spreads, the inaccuracy, the inconsistency of it, and the poor education of people about herpes. And it's like, the way that it spread isn't even 100% by sexual contact. Right. right? Herpes so with low we... is something athletes mm -hmm. get. From, and, yeah. and so it's like, why are we even calling this exclusively an STI? Like there's mm -hmm. definitely an argument there if we are talking about the number of HSV-1 occurrences and then like where did HSV-2 come from? Did it just uh, like arise out of nowhere? Because like if we're getting it orally in youth and then we go on and we pass it on to someone genitally in adulthood, that person isn't a bad person for having received oral sex, right? Just like mm -hmm. that person who got it isn't a bad person for having gotten a kiss from someone who just was a carrier of the virus. And so there, there's so many factors here that really um, volley stigma and allow it to stay up in the air. And the main thing that I think is just this, it, 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 the stigma is held up uh, on these pillars at the intersection of sexual health and mental health, or really how we talk about sex and how we talk about mental health. Um, I like how, I like the direction that it seems like the media is going, social media influencers, athletes, so many people with large platforms are now talking about mental health. So hmm. we're talking about anxiety, depression, and uh, other things that people are dealing with and being aware of what your mental health is and being able to seek support, talk to someone who's a licensed mental health professional. And now there's an easy way to just kind of sneak sexual health conversations in there because- um, one of the things that I like have noticed and highlighted over at least the last year or so is how we don't talk about sex as youth and how we learn about sex in adulthood. So we 
Well, many of us have learned about sex in a way that was just like, don't do it, wear a condom, or wait till you're married. Mm -hmm. And when you focus on those, you omit very important aspects of relationship management. So we're not teaching people how to uh, manage their relationships, how to set boundaries, how to ask for what they need, how to say no, how to hear no, how to identify Mm -hmm. abuse. And we learn that often through trial and error and learning, like, why is my sex life so toxic or whatever, and Mm -hmm. developing into adults that now have had to learn all of those relationship uh, skills that should have been taught in sex education in adulthood. BDSM is a great example because boundaries are articulated and we talk about consent and being able to say no and be able to hear no and be able to deliver an enthusiastic yes and ask for what you need. That in BDSM on the surface, we look at it as sex stuff, right? But when you're Mm -hmm. in it, it's more about boundaries and those relationship management skills. Those aspects of of sex can be taught to youth without even bringing up sex so that our youth is now equipped to navigate their relationships with uh, not only with intimate partners, but also with their families in their communities, how they engage with media, how they talk to strangers even. They mm-hmm. now have this tool, these tools, this skill set, and it transfers over to sex. So now we've got consent abiding youth that you know, the the conversation around sex period can just be more uh, objective because now that they know how to say, you know, this hurts, I don't like this, or I don't want to try that. And other people know how to receive that. Like, oh, okay, well, if that makes you uncomfortable, let's do something else. Or I respect you. This stuff Mm -hmm. isn't being taught. And that's what's leading to a lot of the shame that people are facing throughout the course of their sexual lives. So- Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'll stop there because I keep <laughs> So I, two things come up and then we'll take a break. Um, I'm thinking about if you're someone who laughed at or shared like herpes memes all your life and then you have herpes, like that is going to alter your community where you fit in, you know, because now you need new community. You want friends who are going to not laugh at shit like that or make those jokes. Um, I drove past a house. This was like a, a couple years ago when Trump was still in office. And uh, it said something like, Donald is the disease. Like, <sighs> stop, stop the Donald. Donald. Stop, stop, the, stop Donald. the Donald. STD. Yep, you're familiar with it. And I'm just like, hmm, that person's probably never had a full screening. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to take it out of the yard, but I just shook my head at it for a few months. Um, and then the second thing that comes up is I play like tickle, wrestle, struggle games with my nine-year-old um, because she initiates them. She loves them, which is normal. And it's been a great non-sexual way for me to teach her language and boundaries and consent and like a code word. So one of the reasons that researchers like say that, you know, engaging in BDSM, they know it doesn't mean you are a fucked up or necessarily traumatized individual. Um even if you are, that's fine. But a lot of us like power dynamic play games anyway, and we play them throughout our lives. So when my kid is like, mommy, I want you to tickle me until I yell or scream or squawk. These are like very specific. This is how she jumps off into a game we play. And if she says poodle, um, that means like actually stop. So the other time she's like, no, 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 you know, and a lot of parents can identify with this. So there's really, you're doing the same kind of boundary setting and communication as one might engage with if they're doing BDSM. Yeah. Yeah. Which is non-sexual. Mm-hmm. Lots of layers there. So let's take a break and then we'll do some listener questions and you can help us with relationships. Yay. Yay. Write to me, your host, Elle Stanger. They talk sex at protonmail.com and write to Courtney. Courtney Brame at email Courtney at spfpp.org or find him on Twitter or Instagram at H on my chest. Ioba Toys is the creator of the super silent sex toys, the Oh My G and the Oh My C. The Oh My G is a G-spot massager with three intensity levels, a massaging pearl, and a unique C-shape made to precisely hit the G-spot. The Oh My C is a clitoral massager with a rotating massaging pearl that mimics a tongue or fingers, also known as oral sex, and it fits in the palm of your hand. 
Both toys are super silent and come in pink or white. Try code L30 for 30% off on iobatoys.com. Do you have sex questions? Do you want help learning new techniques, communicating with a partner, opening a relationship, or exploring kink? Sex and intimacy coach Stella Harris can help. Book a session now to take your intimate life to the next level. Listeners of this podcast receive 20% off their first session with code TTS. Learn more and schedule at www.stellaharris.net or follow her on Instagram at Stella Harris Erotica. Welcome back to the Herpes and Relationships episode with Courtney Brame. He is the founder of Something Positive for Positive People organization and the podcast of the same name. He's a herpes educator. Uh, let's do some listener questions. Okay, so someone wrote to me and they said that they found out that their boyfriend was on um, Valtrex. Valtrex. They didn't know he had type 2, so they found out when they found his medication. Um, that's a separate issue. The listener question is, I mean, separate but related. Listener question one, do I have to tell hookups if I don't have any outbreaks? Do I have to tell hookups I have herpes if I don't have any outbreaks? Uh, so depending on who you ask and depending on your doctor, you are going to get all types of answers, right? Um, obviously disclosure is the best route to take. And from my end, I hear from people who are not okay with how they receive their diagnosis. And oftentimes it is a hookup. Um, and so I'm going to say disclose, this is a whole thing around just like your ethics and, uh, some people will argue that this is a consent violation and other people will argue that, well, they didn't ask. Oh, right. God. So being able to exchange dialogue around your sexual health, like this is a two way street. You're having to not only disclose your status to a potential partner, but you also have to be on the receiving end of a disclosure too. Like they need to disclose to you as well. Like not only whether or not they have, uh, if they are, living with an STI, but uh, when were they last tested? And these are really good screening questions to figure out if this is going to be even a high quality partner that you're going to have a positive sexual exchange. Those with. are my flirting so, questions. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, right? Like if you're asking someone this or, you know, asking them to share, like, we're flirting. <laughs> yeah, and it, it can be like real, yeah, real smooth about it. So yeah, do you know where I can get tested around here? <laughs> yeah, I haven't been screened in a while. Uh, yeah, but just to simply, for me to simply answer your question though, yes, please do. Because this might be somebody who hooks up with someone else or like, you know, and, and that other person just might not be in a good space. And I understand like, that's not your responsibility, that's theirs. But ultimately, like, this is someone who may come around and speak to someone who's like in a similar position as me and not be okay. And we may not even be able to get them the tools that they need because some people when diagnosed with an SCI or with herpes specifically, let me just keep it uh, relevant to herpes. They are in situations where like they cannot afford for their partner to have found out that they cheated mm, right? or mm -hmm. they may not be able to uh safely live with themselves safely disclose yeah. and there's there's so many layers and elements to this but like the general consensus is just please do it i understand that it's an inconvenience i understand that like it might not feel not, sexy yeah and it, it doesn't seem fair uh that's another common thing like it's not fair no someone didn't disclose to me but at the same time we'll you be know, better we we yes we got to be better okay so listener question number two why do i feel stuck with the gaslighter who gave me herpes out of fear of telling others and then they added a sad face emoji so what i'm hearing is that they're afraid to leave this relationship because they don't want to have to potentially start a new one and share this 
Is that what you're hearing? Person. I don't. Yes. Uh, person in this relationship. Please get out of it. Um, you first off are far more than your diagnosis. Like you were a whole human before you received that piece of paper, before you got that phone call and you had aspects of yourself that were not exclusively tied to your sexual identity or your sexual health status. I think that it's important for you to associate with people who may have known you before your diagnosis so that they can just remind you who you are. So start with micro or low risk disclosures to people that you don't want to have sex with. Uh, try telling some friends. You may even want to just like tell strangers, right? And see what their responses are. But the more you disclose, the easier it gets, the more comfortable you are about it. And for some people, like they'll argue that it never gets easier, but that's for other reasons. I think that there are several screening processes that we can have in place that allow us to figure out if someone is A, worth even initiating a conversation about sex with, and then B, you know, getting to the point of, all right, you know, we're going to have sex soon. Like, I want to make sure that you're aware of this. Like, I'm feeling it and I want to make sure you know that I'm feeling it. <laughs> so to scare yourself into staying in this relationship that overall is not meeting your needs, your desires aren't being met, you're not being treated, you know, as well as you can be. Like the way I see it, your person or people, depending on your dating style, are out there waiting on you right now. One, uh, there are three different responses you'll get to a disclosure. One is going to be no thanks. Mm -hmm. The second one could be tell me more. And then the third one's going to be me too. Yep. Like those are the three responses. Mm -hmm. So statistically speaking, it's two thirds possible that you're going to receive uh, a not negative um, response to your disclosure. Yeah. And it's more important that you get out of that gaslighting, um, abusive, emotionally abusive relationship than anything else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and there's like all types of support communities and social groups, dating groups, like you have options if you're not ready to fully go out there and like push yourself out there on Tinder, Bumble, whatever dating sites you may use, then these are options for you. Can um, we so just can we name can you name you mentioned a dating site earlier. Do you mind naming any of them? Uh, people can email me and I'll let them know what it is. But even there, like on dating sites, you got to understand like dating with herpes is just like dating. You are still going to run into incompatibilities with people. People are not going to be as available as they make you think they are. And just because someone's single don't mean they're available. Like there's a whole lot of, you know, the, the regular dating stuff that you still have to deal with and that you will encounter and now add herpes to it. And I think, honestly, you mm -hmm. have a really good screening mechanism for people to cut through any and all BS because someone who's in a sketchy situation, maybe married or uh, whatever, like they don't want to put themselves at risk of messing up what it is that they got going on. So you can cut through a lot of the BS by finding out, you know, someone's telling you, oh, yeah, I really want to be with you. I like you. I love you. I, I can't I can't stop thinking about you. I can't wait to get my hands on <laughs> Prove you. it. And you tell them, <laughs> yeah, you tell them, all right, hey, here's the situation. Yeah. I can't tell you how many women specifically have shared with me that that's been something that's, you know, saved them from being in a situation that wasn't desired. Like they went on later to find out dude was sketchy or dude was inconsistent and not real about whatever their situations were. So you got to take this as like a superpower. You know, mm -hmm. I, I hate to say it like this, but Batman became a superhero after the trauma of his parents passing away, mm -hmm. right? Superman's planet blew mm -hmm. up. We got herpes. So now here we got this whole like <laughs> the screening mechanism. We're welcoming in a lot more positive interactions with people and offering this as a way of connecting to people by being vulnerable through the experiences that we've had uh, along the course of having our diagnosis, this is something that really does allow for us to connect with people. And as cheesy as it sounds, I hear from people on a regular basis that their diagnosis was probably one of the best things that's ever happened to them because it's allowed for them to connect and because it's hmm. allowed for them to see that people see them for far more than just what they can do with their genitals. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So we kind of mentioned this earlier. Listener question three, what's a good way to bring up asking when's the last time you were tested? Um, seriously, though, I mean, you can be a person who outright says, so can I ask when was the last time you were tested for any STIs? And then you can offer your own information. I was screened for like these things on this date. A lot of people aren't going to be so specific and straightforward. And I understand that. Um, you could say, have you ever 
had an STI test before, was it uncomfortable for you? You know, maybe like you're curious, maybe you haven't had one. Maybe you go together. I like how you just said that. Yeah, like you're asking about the experience of being tested rather than where you tested. Because I think when's the last time you were tested can sound like, oh, it, it can warn a response of, why are you asking? What are you, what are you concerned? <laughs> but if you ask in a way that's like, Oh, yeah, was it uncomfortable for you to get tested? It's also very like presumptuous that this person's a responsible individual who regularly gets screened for SCIs mm-hmm. and you're making it relatable to like the potential discomfort of it. So I, I like the way you phrase that. Well, thank you. I have one more hot tip and then I want to hear from you. Um, someone's pointed out before that it can seem presumptive that you're going to have sex with someone and you could really freak them out or turn them off if you bring something up like this too early. Um, and to that, I say, if you're not sure it's the right time to bring it up, you can delay it and delay it. But if you find yourself suddenly in a sexual situation, that is when you are perfectly within your right and is the best time and the only time you have left to pull back and say, can I ask when was the last time you were screened? Because how they react in that moment is going to tell you a lot also. Yeah. So, Um, so what do you think? Uh, I've been in situations on both ends uh, where I've been oblivious in the past in dating to where I don't know that we're going to have sex until like we're making out and clothes are coming off. And it's Mm -hmm. like, ah, ah, we need to have this conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've been in situations where it's been discussed ahead of time before Mm -hmm. even connecting with the person that, hey, we're going to like if we're going to have sex, here's what it looks like. But. I think that it's a matter of like knowing what your intentions are and you can simply just ask what another person's intentions are. You know, Um, there are various ways to go about this, especially conversationally. So like if you're conversing and you throw out some euphemisms and innuendos and like the sex is coming up, I think that when it gets to the point of talking about personal sex lives and sex with one another, this is a great time to bring it up rather than when the act is about to happen, but where the idea is floating around of what sex could look like between you and the other person or people who you are potentially going to engage with. So that's, uh, that's even a good time, you know, if you're into the place of learning about their turn-ons, learning about things that may turn them off, you know, well, you know what turns me off? When I asked someone about the last time they were screened for STIs after I shared when I was screened and they can't tell me when they were, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's like, it, it sounds like something that'll just bring all things to a screeching halt. But I can't tell you, like, for me being a man and offering that conversation first, Ooh. women appreciate that so much more and feel a lot more comfortable with me. And I've learned that throughout the course of my experience navigating the sex education, sex positivity space, I don't have a problem with it. And once I like started to learn that, I started to just get creative with how I ask. So I can be corny here and there and uh, play around with all the different ways that you can ask or sneak it in there, really. I'm thinking of like Dr. Seuss books. (laughs) Do you like green eggs and ham? Do you like it? Do you like a dental dam? Right. <laughs> Which, yeah. And also, yeah, dental dams. Those are great, by the way. People should use those. Ooh. Um, you mm-hmm. could say, like, there's ways you can bring stuff up where, I mean, a lot of adults, like, when we flirt, we talk about sex or we send memes or whatever. And uh, I'm thinking about, like, you could say something like, oh, I actually enjoy latex because I have HSV2, so I incorporate it in my play sometimes. That's yes. a way to disclose. Yeah, and that's that's good too. <laughs> like there, there's no limitation on how you can go about uh, not just disclosing, but also creating a space to where speaking about sex period can happen, and understanding that the conversation around sexual health, specifically yours and your partner's sexual health, uh, is going to be so much more organic. Like you don't want to just be at dinner, you know, you're waiting on the appetizer and you're like, all right, so when's the last time you got tested? That's presumptuous, <laughs> right? Boy, I mean, you've been fisted lately. <laughs> right? <laughs> Any of it. So, uh, I, I hope I was able to answer the question, but for me, the best time for me, because I'm the kind of person who likes to know because I'm an overthinker, the, way to, the <laughs> best way to counter overthinking is to just flat out ask. Like communication is the cure for overthinking. So asking a person, hey, 
you know, I'm feeling this vibe right now. I could be wrong, but here's what I'm feeling. And if we are feeling that, then I need to have a conversation with you. And it's about my sexual health. I was tested or I, I tested positive for general HSV however long ago. And you can be really objective about it. Not to turn this into like a response of how to disclose, but this is just the nature and natural flow of the conversation around sexual health. And when you have it enough, you get really, really comfortable with it. And the Mm -hmm. more comfortable you are, you're able to pick up on how the other person may be receiving it so that you know what to offer them. And also, you know how to take care of yourself after a disclosure, whether it goes the way that you wanted it to or not. Um, You have these things in place to take care of yourself because disclosing can be like it can generate a lot of fatigue in a person. It can be exhausting. Yeah. yeah. Am I safe? Am I that. safe? Am I being scrutinized? Yep. Is this going to be held against me? Yeah. This comes to the next question. Four, I need help coping with shame and embarrassment. My outbreaks are so severe sometimes. I want to ask if they're on any kind of prescription medication. Mm-hmm. Like Valtrex really helps a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so in my experience, um, and just speaking to people, uh, taking medication could cause more outbreaks. Like some people will go from having had no outbreaks at all to suddenly having their first one. And they're so grossed out, shamed and disgusted that they want to get on the medication every day before even giving their body time to respond to it. And in many cases, people are living with HSV and just don't know. So their bodies might have already been managing it. It just could have been some sort of a life occurrence that triggered enough stress to where your immune system was suppressed enough for the virus to surface. So I think that it's important to, you know, with your doctor's guidance, choose whether or not it's okay for you to not be on the medication for a bit, to only take the medication as needed. Um, For me, when I had my outbreak, fortunately, the doctor just gave me three pills. He said, take two of these a day, six hours apart for three days, and your outbreak will go away. And I started taking the medication. My shit went away right away. And I was like, oh, it looks like nothing ever happened. And I've only had that outbreak. I had one when I got fired. But stress is a really Hmm. key part of this. And Mm -hmm. we live in this with stigma. There's this perpetual cycle of... I'm stressed because I have outbreaks. I have outbreaks because I'm stressed. So we got to figure out a way to break that cycle through routine, um, through um, giving yourself things to look forward to, through seeking support and community. Like there are so many communities of communities of communities of people who are living with herpes. Like there's dating groups, social groups, there's sports groups, there's like interest groups, moms groups, uh, almost anything you can think of, like you can find, it's unfortunate how challenging it is to find though, because you have to be mindful of people's anonymity. So you gotta like know somebody who knows somebody and you have to be willing to have taken the risk to disclose to someone who might be a part of that like underground. Cause like once you're in there, you're, you're in there. Well, how about people can support your organization and reach out to you with a donation and an inquiry and you can direct them. Yeah, that, that also works. Like um, we do that as well as like, if you're someone who's struggling with your mental health and you know it, um, I try to connect people with a therapist who has at the very least some sort of experience with uh, dealing with people who are struggling with STI stigma. Um, So far throughout the pandemic, uh, 40-ish people were in therapy. Um, Some of those were in group therapy, which is something that I'll probably launch once a month, um, depending on how the donations run in or come in. Um, But being able to get 10 to 12 people uh, in a safer space where they can share experiences with other people led by a mental health professional who's licensed. Um, This is a really healing thing. And um, the exit interviews from that are wrapping up. So we're able to demonstrate the value of being in support groups that have this element to them where there's a licensed mental health professional facilitating these groups. So that's also something that we're offering as something positive for positive people that if you have the means to support uh, monetarily, please do. And if you're someone who needs the resource, like reach out, like it's a nonprofit, 
Um, and you know, if you can't contribute anything right now, it doesn't matter. Like this is here to help people get to a place where they're comfortable enough to disclose their status, seek support, get out of whatever gaslighting, toxic relationships they're in and be able to get back to just like loving themselves unconditionally or making their way to loving themselves unconditionally. If this is something that's a foreign concept to them. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, if leaving your relationship isn't um, appealing or an option at this time, like I think of this couple that lived above me like a decade and a half ago, and I wonder about them. I wonder how they ended up because um, I remember like we would all drink and party together. And I remember the husband, they each said to me separately, she, the wife said that she had just been diagnosed with herpes and she was really ashamed and really upset. And the husband later disclosed to me that he was kind of disturbed and like didn't know if that meant he had it now too. So obviously they received no education around the issue. And so if leaving your partner isn't a palatable option, your partner probably just needs education to realize mm -hmm. how common this is. Yes. And yes. there's nothing wrong with you. You're just different and the world is different than you thought it was. Yeah. Um, and it's really challenging to find that information or to find consistent, accurate, honest communication about this virus because the information is coming from people who don't have experience living with herpes. Mm. And the information that people who have herpes want is something that can only come from people who are living with herpes. Um, I was able to put together, fortunately, with the help of a lot of great accounts on social media and people, including UL, um, to get... 1148 people living with hsv to take this survey so that Damn. we have something for 2021 that's relevant and reflective of the reality of people who are living with herpes so we have a general idea of um like who's seeking support what support options are out there how people are managing symptoms what their mental health statuses are and uh there, there's a lot of information there and that can be found on the something positive for positive people website spfpp.org uh, but it's something that when you pair the information together uh it can a be a very useful tool for disclosing the partners and taking the time to educate them based on the real lived experiences now obviously i can't provide or measure transmission rates, but hopefully this is something that can initiate that kind of dialogue moving forward. But the second part of this is that uh, when we look at this, uh, some statistics that stood out to me, wow, say that five times fast, were <laughs> how HSV was the first STI that 70-ish, high 70s percent of people got. And then another one was that uh, high 70s percent of people, HSV was the only uh, diagnosis that they had gotten. So for the information that's out there to say that people who are with, living with SCIs aren't careful or they're, they're all these different things, that's just flat out not accurate based on what the survey responses reflect um, wow. in this survey. So something that I learned from community feedback was about lysine, taking like lysine as a supplement mm -hmm. to minimize or shorten outbreaks. And like a doctor didn't tell me that, but I ended up looking a bunch on the internet and trying to find reliable medical stuff. And it was like, what I found, and this could be updated and someone please tell me if so, or I'll actually cross-reference, I'll check later. Um, but there wasn't like strong research about it. However, there was a lot of people living with herpes who reported that it was effective. And so I started taking lysine. I would take it when I felt my immune system was especially compromised or I would be excessively in the sun or I would be traveling, um, you know, any like stress immune system triggers and definitely shorten my outbreaks because I've been having on my mouth since I was about nine or 10 years old and um, 34. So I, if I get one or two a year, I didn't get it for a few years. And certainly I think the lysine helps. So stuff like that, like even just hearing from other people, can be so huge. Yeah. And with all the experiences that people in the communities of communities of people who are living with herpes, you'll find that there are so many different like tricks of the trade, so to speak, uh, different ways of disclosing that work for some people, different treatments that work for some people and different just findings that people have with their bodies. And it's unfortunate that the most, mm, I guess, trusted or 
confident information that we can get is on the internet and not from our healthcare providers uh, upon diagnosis, because that 100% can uh, play a role in how people choose to navigate their diagnosis moving forward. Mm -hmm. So let's take another quick break. Email theytalksex at protonmail.com. Go look up Courtney at H on my chest on Instagram and at Twitter. We'll be right back. Hey there. Do you want to help people and make money doing it? Becoming a coach might be your ticket. The coaching industry is currently filled with a lot of straight white coaches and working with straight white people who have the privilege to hire them. The Coaching Guild is changing that. The Coaching Guild is looking for diverse people with diverse experiences and backgrounds who want to get university-level training to become a coach. This is not a shortcut certification program. This is intense training for the real world. They are looking for the artists, the rebels, and the wild ones. You can change the world one client at a time and make money doing it. Visit www.thecoachingguild.com. Do you have a sensitive vulva or vagina? Me too. People with vaginas will experience at least one yeast infection in their lifetime, and many folks like myself get them every time the seasons change. As someone who relies on their vaginal health for their personal and professional wellness, I use Momotaro Apotheca solutions for preventing bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection. Their products also serve urinary tract infections, postpartum care issues, aftercare, and general irritation from sex, clothing, and exercise. I love these things. I use them to shorten my healing time or prevent irritation. Use Stripper Writer for a discount code and check out their affiliated CBD products at Oshihana.com. That's MomotaroApotheca.com and Oshihana.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex Podcast. I'm your host, L. Stanger. Find me online at lstanger.com. Twitter at L. Stanger. Hi, Courtney Brame. Thanks for being a huge part of the Herpes and Relationships episode. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I like it when I can have people like I actually genuinely know and like because experts on things are fantastic, but we got a good rapport. So yeah, Yeah, it makes for a nice, warm, fuzzy episode. Let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about herpes in the news. Um, I know. So I'm sure everyone's sick of remembering that we've lived through a major pandemic. And if you're listening in 2021, we're probably still living through it. So we record this episode in June of 2021 for context. I found this article on businessstandard.com. Doctors caution about post-COVID problems from reactivation of herpes infection. That's kind of, I don't know if I like that turn of phrase. So symptoms of herpes infection increase to loss of hair. Several COVID patients in recovery phase are facing one dermatological complication or another due to lowered immunity, say doctors. Um, They're doing a big study in India, Mumbai. Uh, Basically, the point of this is that, let's see, in many patients, one doctor is quoted, in many patients with a history of herpes, it gets re-triggered, and in others, they are contracting it afresh, both due to lowered immunity. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Cases of infection from candida fungus have also been seen among the COVID patients who are in recovery phase. It is a mold-like infection and can result from excessive medication or use of steroids. This infection causes white patches on genitalia. Um, So the point, I guess I'm just sharing this, is like when you have a lowered immune system, you're more susceptible to different complications. So I think when we think about like being proactive, it's how do I protect my immune system overall? Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think that what also added to this is the fact that like gyms were closed um, and Ooh. it was also cold outside. So a lot of people aren't used to that. Um, I know working out at home became a big thing, but a lot of people need that 
external motivation in order to be on top of their physical health. So, you know, the pandemic and the restrictions and everything like didn't help with people's routines of taking care of their bodies. So I can see that definitely having played a major role in this. And like, that's something that I do to manage my outbreaks. Fortunately, um, I've been in yoga for the last eight years. So as long as I got like a six by three foot space, I'm able to get some sort of movement in. And then Mm. as far as like stress management goes, like people were losing jobs and all kinds of things. So like I mentioned, you know, situationally for people who are navigating a herpes diagnosis, more stress is a major trigger for an outbreak. And so Mm. if you're unable to do the things that allow for you to de-stress, then you're going to see more of those complications. And so that just perfectly translates well over into other things becoming an issue. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the services your organization offers. Ooh, all right. So um, the podcast, (laughs) the podcast is 100% like the thing that people come for. They get what they need. They might stay, they might leave, they might interview. Um, But I'm always looking for people who are willing to share their experiences. No two experiences are the same but all of them can be related to by someone. So I interview people about their experience uh, living with herpes. And while that started out to be about 90% of the conversation and only 10 being about the human, that's shifted over the years. So it's amazing to see how insignificant herpes is in a lot of people's lives. And that other 90% of which is more so about how people have become you know, a person that they like and love, how they've been able to learn through their experiences that came after their diagnosis so that they can get the job they wanted or they can get out of the relationship they were in or get into the relationship they want. Like there are all these different aspects of a human that I'm demonstrating through these interviews for people to connect with. So while you may come here to connect because herpes, right? By the time that you leave out of there, you ought to be able to connect with the people who are there. Um, the monetary services are therapy. Um, I'm developing a network of sex positive therapists who can inter- or who can interview, who can serve people who are struggling with STI stigma. Um, and in a perfect world, like I'd just be able to support people in getting their mental health needs met, period. So that's the direction that we want to head. Because essentially, if you make a big enough donation and we're paying for your therapy, essentially your therapy becomes a tax write-off. I don't know that I can say that in my mission statement, but that's a damn good selling point for anybody I have a (laughs) private conversation with. So that is a good one. That's exactly what it is that we're doing. So um, if you need therapy or if you need group therapy, um, I'm launching something positive for positive people yoga soon. By the time this podcast episode is live, um, you'll be able to see on my social media that I'm promoting and talking about it. Um, And then like workshops for herpes disclosures and being able to navigate discussions around boundaries. Like these are all things that I am aiming to get out there through something positive for positive people. So any like publicity and shares and interviews like this, uh, money for sure. These are all things (laughs) that support being able to make the progression that we need in order to be able to just pay for people to get therapy, period. Herpes aside, SCI status and stigma aside, like if you're someone who needs a sex positive therapist, this will be the go-to space for that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm so glad to support the organization. Um, what are some resources that have been helpful for your learning? Um, experience. Um, just flat mm-hmm. out. It's been experience. Um, talking to people about it. Um, I don't know if, if anyone's familiar with the 12-step program. Um, for Which like, one? Uh, which one? It's like AA? AA for AA, yes. Yeah. The 12th step is help someone else. So for me, I think that being able to have the privilege that I have, because I want to make sure that I acknowledge that, to be able to openly say I have herpes and not have to worry about any consequences or yeah, repercussions because I work for myself. I work with uh, one of my best friends. Um, I have that privilege. So I feel as if um, 
helping other people through their own experiences was something that helped me through mine. Because in everyone's experience who's shared with me, I was able to see some aspect of myself or somebody else. And now that I have this broad range of perspective of experiences of people living with herpes, it's almost like, you know, I have this, this like vision that cuts through a lot of the unnecessary BS around my own situations that I find myself in. Because even though I've had herpes for eight years now, and I've been talking to people about it for four, doesn't mean that there aren't still uh, default behaviors that come up in response to me just not wanting to tell someone that I have herpes or not wanting to have that kind of a conversation with people. Like I still deal with it with having to tell people what I do. Right. Mm, And it almost always leads to me having to tell someone I have herpes and I don't regret it anytime because that takes so much energy. Yeah. So I'll tell this quick story and then I'll shut up. But I was at the bank setting up the something positive for positive people bank account. And so I'm talking to the lady and of course she asked, so what is something positive for positive people? I was like, ah, here we go. Uh, so, and I explained church. to her. It's church. I just, right. I wish that. <laughs> but here's the thing. So I let her know. I was like, well, this is a suicide prevention resource for people with herpes. And that was the first time I think I said it like that. And in my head, I was like, damn, that was good. And that's a lot. She, yeah, that's great. And she froze and she looked yeah. at me because she had her mask on. She's behind the glass and we're like filing paperwork and she just like froze. And she asked me, you know, how I got into that. And I just went on ahead and gave her like the brief backstory. And she Mm -hmm. told me, she's like, she remembers when she was young, about nine years old, she had an aunt who was diagnosed with herpes. She dealt with depression and she ended up killing herself. And she told me that. I was like, I was like, damn, I'm in the right place. Like, if this ain't a sign. And so, yeah, she shared that with me. And I was like, all right. When people ask, I'm going to tell them. That's a lot for you to carry. So definitely thank you for your work. And I understand why other folks are like, hell no, that's not the life for me. But we can't all be um, activists in our day-to-day life. Courtney Brain, oh, yeah. you are. Thank you so much for the thank herpes you. and relationships episode. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll be reposting your stuff on the Instagrams, the Twitters, as long as they don't kick me off. Right. <laughs> Everybody find him, spfpp.org. Courtney, C O P P P P. Oh man, I know the text threads we have. I love talking to other sex educators because there's like layers upon layers of like sex humor and gallows like dark humor and code switching and yeah. So thanks for yes. having fun with me here today. Find him also yeah. at H on my chest on Instagram and Twitter. And find me lstanger.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to They Talk Sex Podcast. Woo, bitches! <laughs>